Jonah chapter 2. I'll be reading all 10 verses. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look at, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, uh, after only covering a couple of verses from chapter 2 last week, uh, Ruth Green remarked to me during Super Sunday that it sounds like Jonah's going to be in this belly for a while yet. Um, I said I was just trying to get all of you to feel like Jonah a little bit. I figured three Sundays at least so you can feel some of the weight of Jonah's three days in the fish, right? We're going to try to get Jonah to dry land today if we can. Last week, we started talking about this, this prayer of Jonah's, and we talked about how the prayer takes the form of a song uh, and how the song echoes scriptures. Jonah is falling back on his Bible lessons, his memory verses, scripture songs he knows. He borrows from the Psalms and elsewhere to find the words to pray. Now, one of you caught a slight inaccuracy in something I said because I said that Jonah at one point echoes lamentations. That's an anachronism. Uh, Lamentations was written 200 years after this. My point stands. I just got the order wrong. Quick thinking, Mr. Hayes. Thank you. (laughs) But Jeremiah is echoing Jonah, not the other way around. Point is, it is good to pray God's words back to him. And we saw that that's partly what Jonah was doing. Uh, But it's also important and worthwhile to apply God's word to your specific context. Because God is not an automaton. Uh, He doesn't expect purely rote recitation. He can handle you bringing your specific situation to him. uh, And it makes sense to contextualize God's word in your circumstance. Uh, You know, for instance, the fact that we're even reading Jonah today, right? In our American current context, like we're not the original audience, but God's word is meant for us as well, even living here in Allentown in 2023. It still has application. We can apply this word and the lessons, even though none of us are, Galilean Jews who were swallowed by a whale this week. Uh, Likewise, if you recite the Psalms or you read a prayer book, that's good. Um, But it's also fitting to use your own words to express what's on your heart and to pray God's promises back to him while also using your own words. It's fitting to mix it up a bit. And that's what Jonah does here. And, you know, having now read it now a couple of times, we've seen sort of the overall tone and premise and format of the prayer. I want to look more deeply at the content 
uh, the prayer of a desperate man who is nevertheless convinced that God is still his God and will still give him aid. Now, Jonah's prayer does several things. It is a prayer, it is a song, but it also kind of tells a story. And really, prayer is often like that, isn't it? Uh, you're telling God a story, in a sense, of what happened and why and how you feel about it, you know, and you're kind of asking him sometimes for a specific ending to this story. Um, but prayer often has a certain narrative quality to it, and Jonah's prayer is not an exception to that. So I want to look at a little bit at how this story that Jonah's telling him and what, what the themes are and what he's saying about God and about himself and about the situation he's in. Now, we've already established last week and before that that what Jonah's current position is. Uh, it's not good. He's living in a grave, virtually indistinguishable from Sheol itself. He describes his prayer as a crying out from Sheol. What is Sheol, you may ask? Well, it's the place of the dead in, in Jewish idioms. It's, it's, in other words, the grave. In the New Testament, it's common for the writers to use the Greek Hades to represent the same idea. But it, it kind of represents God's waiting room, like Florida, but without golf courses. And um, yet Jonah isn't entirely dead. He's only mostly dead, which means he's partially alive. Princess Bride, some of you people know these things. Come on. Um, as Hezekiah prays in the book of Isaiah, he says, Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. And yet, as we read this, we see that Jonah is hopeful, and he does praise, and he does have thanksgiving in his heart. He's hopeful, and surprisingly so. We started to see it last week in his posture, in the opening words. He's singing praise and thanksgiving. The story he is telling is a story of God's faithfulness. And that's where this prayer comes from. It comes from the pit. Jonah is essentially buried alive. There are some people in this room who have experienced this, literally. Most of us have at least experienced it figuratively. That is Jonah's position as he cries out to God. He's a desperate man. He's at the end of himself. His body is wasting away. His life is at the brink. His mind is probably going at this point. I think after three days, it's not uncommon that you would think he would be descending into near madness. He is what we would call in colloquial language, a goner. And yet, he believes God is still there and listening. What is he going to say and what story is he going to tell as his life is sort of flashing before his eyes? What is he thinking? How did he get here? What does it mean? Well, I posed it as a question last week. How do you pray when you're in trouble? How do you pray when you're in a crisis? How do you pray when you're desperate? Some of you have probably been desperate before, maybe even this week. So what do you say to God in those moments? What story do you tell back to him? When you can find words at all, I should say, what story are you telling? Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble and facing a crisis, I personally tend to ask God a lot of questions. And I make a lot of requests. I ask him, why is this happening? I ask for strength. I ask for guidance. I ask for wisdom. 
I ask for him to spare me from the consequences of my own stupid actions. I often ask him to change the situation that I'm in. My favorite is to ask him to change the other people involved in the situation that I'm in. That's a, that's a classic prayer for many of us. The point is, is that most of my prayers that are prayed in desperation take the form of questions, asking God for help, asking him why, asking him to resolve this crisis that I'm facing. Uh, my prayers become urgent requests, sometimes mixed with tears. That's how I tend to pray in a crisis. Not beautiful prayers that sound like the Valley of Vision, right? They look more garbled. And I think that's okay. God hears those prayers. But I notice something very strange about Jonah's prayer. Something that stands out to me. It's very different from my kind of prayer in a desperate situation. Not only is it eloquent, but I want you to notice something else about it. There's not a single question in it. Jonah makes no explicit requests. Does not that seem odd to you? If I were Jonah, I could think of a few requests I might make at this present time. Relief from various afflictions, maybe, you know, maybe a quick death, maybe God's forgiveness. But Jonah doesn't explicitly ask for anything. Instead, he tells a story. He tells God's story back to him. And what's remarkable is that the entire prayer focuses primarily on God, not the situation per se. He's telling God about what he has done, what he will do, and how awesome he is. With his final breath, Jonah does not ask questions. He makes statements of fact. And there's a theme in there. I want you to see this, that there's a resurrection theme in Jonah's prayer, which is a good theme to include in your own prayer life. It starts with desperation, looking at his sin and helplessness, but it culminates in redemption and hope. Throughout the prayer, he punctuates everything with resurrection and hope. That's the pattern to Jonah's prayer. He opens with a sort of preface, announcing that he's crying out to God. We saw that last week when we looked at verse 2. But that's followed by a series of, of three stanzas, as it were. And the first two are what uh, Paul Miller might call uh, J-curves. Jonah goes down, but then comes back up. It starts with desperation and moves into hope. And again, it's not a hope that is rooted, obviously, in Jonah's circumstances, but rather in the goodness of God. It is a resurrection pattern. And it can basically be summarized in this way. Things are bad, but God is good. My life sucks, but God is good. And as he awaits death, Jonah is clinging to that truth. He goes through this cycle twice, as I said, just to emphasize the point. It's a common literary device in Hebrew to sort of repeat a theme. But you look at the first stanza, it's verse 3 and 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah starts in desperation. He says, I'm in a terrible place. And not only that, I am here because you sent me here. 
It's not the sailors who threw me into the deep or that I volunteered. God himself, you cast me. My lousy circumstances are from you, God. And worse than drowning is the fact that I am driven out. I am driven away from God's face. Because what could be worse than being driven away out of God's presence? Is that not the story of Adam and Eve? And yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. I don't know that he really means that literally, the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know if Jonah ever made it back to Jerusalem. It's not part of the story. But what we see is that Jonah is confident that he will lay eyes on God's dwelling place. That whatever separation is happening right now is not forever. There will be a resurrection. The next stanza is verses 5 and 6. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Again, Jonah starts in desperation. He's surrounded by water, obviously. But then he makes this reference to weeds wrapped around his head at the mountain roots. What he's getting at is that he is buried. He is down below. He is underneath the land of the living. And as he describes death, he talks about it as as a prison whose bars are slamming to a close behind him. And he emphasizes how final it all is. Because those doors, once they're closed, tend to stay closed. Some people have had near-death experiences say there's nothing certain but death and taxes, right? People don't usually, they have near-death experiences. Nobody has near-tax experiences. It's kind of funny. Makes me think taxes are maybe slightly more dependable than death then. Our government even taxes the dead. You can't get away from it, you know. But this was no mere brush with death. It's not like he was nearly in a car accident and his life kind of flashed and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it's worse than that. Jonah can feel death. He can see the lights going out. He's experiencing it. And what strikes him is the finality of it. The doors are closing on him. There's no escape. And yet, Jonah says, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord God. There will be a resurrection. Life stinks, but God is good. Jonah goes down, but God brings him back up. This prayer is a resurrection poem. That's a very optimistic tone for Jonah to take in prayer, and it's perhaps fair to ask, what justifies the optimism? And that's what Jonah explains in the third stanza. The third and closing stanza is where he explains his resurrection hope and where it comes from. What has changed that Jonah, this rebel, suddenly feels this sense of joy? Read again the end of this prayer, verse 7 to 9. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What has changed for Jonah 
What he is doing differently is that he remembers. He forsakes his idols and he worships. That, in a nutshell, is where the optimism is coming from. It starts with remembering God. Now, that should be obvious, but it's amazing how easy it is to lose sight of God in your rebellion. I think we've all experienced that on some level. The longer you run from God, the harder it is to look him in the face. And after a while, it becomes hard to even remember. And the more you try to solve your own problems and self-medicate and deal with the issues yourself, the harder it is to look at him. You can't even hear him. You don't even notice him. God becomes an afterthought as you get so busy solving your own problems and you forget he's even standing there. But Jonah says he was fainting, he's fading, his life is ending, but with his final breath he remembers the Lord. Like, oh, there you are. And then he prays. Because it means nothing to remember the Lord unless you proceed to talk to him. And it's amazing how much confidence and peace can be found in prayer because of that. Not because it makes you feel good, like a placebo effect, but because God, in fact, listens to his children. And Jonah says with confidence that his prayers reach the temple, even from the pit, Jonah's voice is heard in the throne room, which is pretty cool. But part of remembering God means forsaking your idols and remembering what makes him different. So Jonah takes a second to contrast his hope with what the pagans are dealing with. The same sort of pagans he went sailing with and the same sort of pagans in Nineveh that he's been avoiding, right? He says they don't have hope. Not like he does. Which is an amazing statement given his position. But Jonah says the pagans forsake all hope. Those sailors up there had less hope than I have right now. Because their gods were not gods at all, but mere idols, and an idol can't love you. Maybe some of you need to hear that. It sounds obvious, but I'll repeat it. You can't get love from an idol. I know I have idols. I've always been convinced that John Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is an idol factory. I don't know how that's even deniable. We all have lots of idols. They take a lot of different shapes. They start off as good things. They become God things. They get in the way. Could be money, pleasure, popularity, you name it. But none of your idols love you back. And if you put your hope in them, you give up God's love. Pagans forsake their hope because their idols are vain. They are empty. But by contrast, my God loves me. Ironically, Jonah himself has been acting like a pagan for weeks, right? But he finally is like recognizing how stupid that he's been, right? And, And in this sudden epiphany, he remembers that his God is real, and that his love is steadfast, meaning it endures forever. This is good stuff. 
It sounds like the gospel. Jonah may be a mess, but he's talking like a new man and he's seeing things with new eyes. But now that Jonah has remembered the Lord is God and he's forsaking the idols, that breaks into worship. He says here in verse 9, right? But with I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He speaks with thanksgiving. He promises sacrifices. He makes vows, just like the sailors did up on the boat, right? In short, the covenant between God and Jonah is being renewed. This prayer is basically a miniature worship service. And all of this is rooted in the steadfast love of Jonah's God. That's what justifies Jonah's resurrection hope. Even if he ends up dead, he will live. Wonderful prayer. And it's a pattern worth imitating. I don't know about you all, but I have had some desperate moments in life. I've had desperate moments this week. And I am quite sure that my prayers weren't this good. Not because it's eloquent, but because it is so focused on God and his goodness. No questions or demands or requests. Everything is focused on God, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Jonah remembers God. He talks to God. He turns from the idols and he worships. He's the worst evangelist of all time, and yet he outdoes me here. And I think most of our prayers could stand to be a little more like this. A little more desperate and yet hopeful. A little more resurrection-shaped. A little more focused on God and our circumstances and ourselves. A little more thankful. A little more worshipful a little more full of us remembering what God has done and will surely do again. Jonah has so much optimism here, and it's hard for me to see why he should be better at this than we are. So Jonah's prayer is resurrection-shaped. He comes in desperation. He ends with hope because he remembers God. He forsakes his idols, and he worships. But perhaps my favorite line in the entire Prayer is what Jonah closes with. What does he say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The more I reflected on that one this week, the more I thought this might be the central theme of the whole prayer. And then I thought, in fact, I would go a step further. I think that this one sentence is actually the central theme of the book of Jonah. And maybe you could even go a step further and make the argument that this is actually the central theme of the Bible. It's a direct echo of Psalm 3, verse 8, but it also foreshadows the scene in Revelation 7, where John gives us a vision of heaven, and he says that a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and language and nation are there, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's the key to the whole book. It might be the key to scripture itself. 
Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. It doesn't belong to Israel. It doesn't belong to the sailors. It doesn't belong to Nineveh. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Presbyterians. It doesn't belong to the PCA. It doesn't belong to LVP. It belongs to God and God alone. And the failure to understand this fact is why Jonah is where he is. And so when he makes that his final declaration, it is not only an act of praise and worship, it's actually a form of repentance. Because it means that Jonah finally gets it. Jonah is finally letting God be God. That's the story he's telling. That's the theme of his prayer, and it's a very good way to close it. This prayer hits all the right notes, and it shows that Jonah has finally bowed the knee. No wonder God hears this prayer. And we know he listened, because he finally delivers Jonah. Just to take the suspense off, we'll go ahead and read verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He's empty and feeling worthless, and God treats him as vomit. <laughs> this would be a great place to just end the book. Unfortunately, Jonah has two more chapters to go, two more chapters to screw He will forget the truth that he proclaimed in the belt. He will eventually wish he could take these words back. But that's a story for future weeks. My call to us today is to imitate Jonah at his best. If you are desperate today, pray like Jonah. Walk away from your idols. Remember the God who loves you. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Return to him. Talk to him. Worship him because salvation belongs to him and him alone. As Christians, we should all believe that. We know that God provided. We know more than Jonah did. We know that God provided a Savior in Jesus Christ. We know that he raised him from the dead. We know that he chose us, that he saved us, even though we did nothing to earn it. The only thing you contribute to your salvation, as Jonathan Edwards said, was the sin that made it necessary. Jonah doesn't understand all of those details, but he knows that the salvation he needs can only come from God, and that is true for all of us. So that's the summary of this book. Jonah says, I am small and simple. You are big and good, and I need you. You can pray our worst prayer. Thanksgiving. And God hears Jonah. He's finally on dry land. He's filthy, he's smelly, but he's free and alive. And as I said, we're going to leave him there, passed out on the beach, and we'll see what happens next week. But God heard Jonah. And he'll hear us today. It's never too late to turn back to him. He hears the desperate prayers of the dying. He receives praise even in the pit. He is good and great and loving worthy of praise and salvation belongs only to him. There's nowhere else to turn. Do you believe that, brother? Jonah finally figured it out. Let's take a lesson from him. We'll try to do the same.
Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, salvation belongs to you. And what good news that is, Lord, because we'd be stingy with it. We thank you that you hear the prayers of the desperate. Teach us, Lord, to come to you praying your own words, Lord, and bringing our own situation to you, Lord. We pray that our prayers would have a resurrection shape. Help us to remember you. Help us to forsake our idols. Teach us to worship. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.